the good ship Exodus ran into a little bit of an iceberg that we didn't see coming. I'll tell you that I didn't see it coming because I thought, for example, the iceberg that was ahead is later in chapter 5 when we start talking about submission. I thought that was going to be the iceberg. So I've been kind of steering the ship, looking out for that iceberg, and I didn't see what happened last week, a little bit of the iceberg <laughs> that we hit last week. So I feel like once in a while, by being interactive, what happens is we run into some really rough seas or a rough spot, or as I feel like last week, we just ran aground. Uh, and I'd like to go back a little bit and cover that, because I feel like it would be really disingenuous for our group to take as much feedback as we do and not address it. As, as we did last week, we were trying to. So I'm going to do the impossible and somehow try to write this ship back up so it's not sinking nose first into the ocean tonight. I'm going to try to see if we can walk back and address some of the things that happened last week. So let's do that. And to do that, I need to step back for a moment and think, what are we doing studying a book like Ephesians? Like, how do we even do it? The first thing we're trying to do is we're trying to do the exegetical work. We're trying to actually figure out what does this text in its original, what was the intended meaning? That's kind of the first level of what we're trying to do when we study this. Now notice we're talking about the original text of Ephesians. We'd like to figure out what Ephesians is all about, and then as we do that, we're going to use things like the historical context, like the literary context. We have to look at the grammar. We have to look at actually use of words. We're going to look at content and context over and over. That's the first level we're doing. And the second thing then is the hermeneutical approach, which is trying to understand, okay, so what interpretation even to get to me? What's the relevance to me? And I feel like sometimes when we study scripture, we jump straight to the second one. We don't actually spend time trying to really get into, wait a minute, what is he saying? And I think that was part of our issue last week. Now, even in a hermeneutical approach, there is a lot to put under this. I'm not going to even go into it because whole classes are taught on this and many, 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 many books are written. So I'm just going to try to make two observations when we're doing this for an epistle. First, the text can't mean what the author didn't intend it to mean. So we can't just make up any meaning. It has to at least relate to what he wanted it to mean. And the second thing is we have to first determine whether the situation that's being addressed applies to us. We do this all the time in the church where we don't pay particular attention to what's going on, and then we get into all sorts of trouble. What are we doing in Ephesians? Well, we're trying to figure out what Paul meant, and we're trying to understand, does any of this apply to us? And of course, last week's discussion was on sexual ethics, and certainly I think that applies to us. Last week, I think some of the questions went right to the bottom of the list. We're still trying to figure out things like, what does Paul mean and does that apply to us, before we get down to, well, what about other scriptures and what about other things in the Old Testament? We're not there yet. And we might only cover these two, like maybe we've tackled slightly the authorship issue just to get us kicked off, and maybe we've looked at what about Paul's other writings to help us illuminate some of the things that are being said. We did that last week, but that's about it. And the reason I'm stressing this tonight, and this is kind of like I'm, I'm instituting martial law for a moment where I'm just going to like say stuff without being too interactive, is because I think we've got to kind of correct our course in learning how to read and understand an epistle together. So here are some objections that you might see, like, I don't understand what sexual immorality means. That was an objection made. Well, actually, the funny thing is, the English word is actually more vague than the Greek word. 
Like, it is properly translated sexual immorality, or some translations you have may translate it as fornication. But look at it, we can see the word, like pornea in the Greek is translated as fornication or sexual immorality, but it has these meanings, adultery, sex with prostitutes, as in, found in 1 Corinthians 6.13, illicit sex, John 8.41. It's also used for incest in 1 Corinthians 5.1, and promiscuity in 1 Thessalonians 4.3. So we kind of know what the word means, it's been used in different places. And if you look at that, one of the objections that was coming out last week was, well, I'm not really sure what it means to be sexually immoral. I mean, immorality in whose eyes? That's skipping too much. We're talking about what does Paul mean when he uses this word? Coincidentally, it's the same word that Jesus uses elsewhere. What does it mean to them? So that'll help us at least frame what it means. Here's another word we looked at. Like the next word is impurity. Right? We're trying to understand this one. Akatharsia. This one is actually translated into impurity, but it actually is a specific type of impurity. Like, it really does deal with lustful living and a sexual impurity. So he's made the case twice. Again, people are like, well, what's impurity mean? He's talking about sexual impurity. And it shouldn't surprise us because he's trying to get us to be imitators of Christ. The same word that we use for greed and covetousness also from the Greek is linked to a sexual content. You know, you might think like, well, greed, like materialism? Sure, you could say that that's what he's talking about. But at the same time, I list up there the 10th commandment because we even know that in the Hebrew scriptures, the same word is kind of used to imply like when it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. There's two kinds of concepts there. Not only being greedy and covetous, but the lustful act of coveting your neighbor's wife. They're kind of wrapped up. And the same word kind of wraps up two concepts. This kind of greed idea kind of wraps them up together. So, Paul is really talking about the sexual ethics of the church. We heard this objection last week. Well, doesn't translation always require some interpretation? Sure. But in this case, the actual thing we're translating from is more clear even than our English language. If you hear the word like, don't be sexually immoral, you might think to yourself, well, what does that mean? Let's start like making lines and give me a list and what can I do? What's in and what's out? Paul's word is pretty broad, very broad in fact. And everybody who was hearing it knew exactly what he was talking about. And that's what we need to take and say, what did it mean to them? Not like, hey, let's just pick something tonight. Another thing I heard last week was, well, Paul and Jesus disagree. I mean, Jesus said very little about sex. <laughs> well, the one thing Jesus did say about sex really kind of just rings the bell and just kind of ends the discussion. Because he said that if you lust, you've already committed adultery, right? Like if you just lust, you've already committed adultery. If you think it, you've done it. That's a pretty high standard. That's about the same standard as what Paul is saying to the church. There should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. It's the same standard. In fact, the other place that Jesus says something about sex is in Matthew 15, 18 to 20. And it's also in Mark 7, 20 to 22. And listen to what he says, defile a person. He says... What defiles a person is murder, adultery, sexual immorality, which is pornea, theft, false testimony, and slander. And as you'll see in a moment, that sounds awfully close to the list that Paul comes up with in 1 Corinthians. So they don't disagree. In fact, they sound like they're talking about the same thing, maybe even from the same source. Maybe Paul is aware of Jesus' teaching on this. There's like not much disagreement. They actually come up with a very similar list. Jeremy this week sent me an article, and I know he wasn't sending it to me to endorse it. He was just sending it to me to show it to me, right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, it was a very interesting article where somebody is making the argument. And, and here's what was interesting about the argument to me that got me right, just right away. It says, what the Bible says about sex was kind of what the article's about. What does the Bible say about sex? And this is a very important point we have to pay attention to. The word say, like when it says, what does the Bible say, is very confusing. Well, what do you mean, what does it say? Like, do you mean, what it, does it describe or what does it prescribe? Because that's very vague. And this article confused those two and just got going. For example, it says, well, we're told you're not supposed to have all these sexual things. However, look at the patriarchs. They had many wives. Okay, but that's descriptive, not prescriptive. I can't find a single commandment in scripture that says, have many wives. That commandment's not there. I've looked. <laughs> it's not there. That's the difference between describing and prescribing. And let me be clear. I don't want to be oversimplistic. It's not that there's never a tension between what is prescribed and what is described. But in this area, there's not much tension. This same article went on to talk about uh, David and Jonathan and how they were gay. The evidence for that, by the way, is one sentence, one phrase in a stanza of a hymn of lament that David gives when he finds out that Jonathan has died. And they say, you see, based on this, that must mean that they were lovers. Look, I looked at a lot of the arguments on both sides of this, and I'm totally unconvinced by this argument. I think the argument is ludicrous, and it's linguistically improper. However, let's just set that aside for a moment. Let's say they were gay. Does that prescribe conduct to Christians? It doesn't. David lusted after his neighbor's wife and killed him, killed the husband, so he could have the wife. I don't see anything in scripture that says, ah, you see, that he, I mean, of course he violated the 10th commandment, but that doesn't mean that we go, so should, so should we. That's the distinction between prescriptive and descriptive. We have to kind of keep that in mind someplace because it's very tempting, and I hear it all the time, a very tempting thing is done when we say, I don't like the ethic that's being described. What about so-and-so? Well, you could just look at us. What about us? As Morgan pointed out last week, who among us is sexually pure? I can tell you the answer. I know it. No one. None of us. But does that mean that we get to then look at the whole thing that he is saying and say, I can just ignore it. I mean, who's sexually pure? Let's just have a party. That's not what's being done. So we have to always look at the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. I mean, I see the story of Samson in scripture. What is Samson? He's a serial fornicator who at the end of his life committed suicide and killed some of his enemies. Does that condone suicide? Does it condone killing your enemies? Does it condone being a serial fornicator? Does it condemn, like, does it prescribe having long hair? <laughs> I mean, it's told for a reason, and there is, and we can go into the whole reason of why Samson became the judge of Israel and what that might mean and what it could mean for us, if anything. But the point is, nothing in that, to me, says this is what you should be doing. You should follow his example. So to point out those examples doesn't help much unless you see God saying, ah, that's my boy, David. That's my boy, killing off your neighbor so you could have his wife. That's what I'm talking about. And we don't see that. We see just the opposite. We see just the opposite. Okay. We also got hung up on these words. Nor should there be an obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking. And we were trying to understand what does that mean. Well, again, I'm not going to bring up all the words and all the words in Greek, but through all the looking that I did, 
One thing that was interesting, through seven different commentaries, nobody had any dispute about what Paul meant to say. In fact, these words were so common, everybody's like, yeah, I mean, we just need to understand a little bit about the, the coarse joking. Like, what exactly does that mean? Like, how would we take that? Um, and, and surprisingly, across a spectrum of different people, they had kind of agreed. Obscene speech is clearly what he's saying don't do. Foolish talk about sex. Remember, this whole passage seems to be about the sex. Dirty jokes, we can say, yeah, that's kind of the coarse joking. And, and this double entendre, you know, this idea of making foolish statements or coarse joking where you know that what you're trying to do is hint at a sexual meaning. Does everybody know what a double entendre is? We kind of got that clear, right? They say, like, if you watch cartoons that have, you know, kids' cartoons, they have them in there all the time, so the adults kind of laugh at something, you know? There's a whole article I saw written on that. I don't know if that's true or not. I hope that's not true, you know? But the idea is we do it all the time. In fact, some of you, like, I don't know, I don't watch The Office, but I hear this all the time when somebody goes, that's what she said. Like, that's exactly like the highlighting of a double entendre, isn't it? Isn't that what that's about, right? Sorry, I don't watch The Office, so I don't even know if that applies or not, but I see the shirts you guys are wearing sometimes. Right? And, uh, so you guys are walking around violating Ephesians 5, you know, just by wearing this shirt, all right? We also had a little bit of taking out a scalpel last week and starting to decide, well, is profanity the same thing as obscene speech? Like, could you use profanity if it wasn't sexual in nature? I mean, Paul's really saying, don't use sexual obscenity. Okay, so if you wanted to hang your hat on the fact that maybe you could use one cuss word because it wasn't sexual, but you couldn't use the other because it was, I don't think that's what he's talking about. Remember, he began Ephesians 5 with this. Be imitators of God. So if you're in your mindset, like this is where we're going. This is what he's talking about. He's concluding the previous section of us being imitators of God. So if the idea of us imitating God is we can use profanity but not obscenity, that's probably, we're on the wrong track already. I think we're missing the point if that's the way we see what he's saying. What I thought would trip us up is not the thing that actually tripped us up. What I really thought would trip us up is this extraordinary statement that says, no immoral, impure, or greedy person. And we know exactly what he's talking about there because he just talked about impurity and immorality and greed with the, with the words we just looked at. Those people are not going to inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Those people are going to actually get a future wrath, a future judgment. I thought that should be the thing that trips us up because when I come across these words and when I did come across these words, my first thought was, oh, this is really uncomfortable for me personally. Like, this is so difficult to think, like, what does this mean? I, I know exactly, like, there's nothing in part of me that's like, well, what does sexual immorality mean? I'm more like, what does it mean that I don't inherit the kingdom of God if I'm a person who's immoral? And as we said last week to conclude that and make sure, because I got lost in our discussion as I went back and listened to it, in this passage, he's talking about people that are outside the church. He's talking about you should not have these things because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will incur wrath. But as I said last week, before we get too comfortable, we should also realize that Paul used the same language in two other passages about not inheriting that also applies to those who are sexually immoral in the church. So it's like we're off the hook temporarily if we want to limit our view to Ephesians, and then we're immediately not off the hook. The inherit the kingdom of God language means you will not fully come into your inheritance. Remember in Ephesians, and we even sang the song that Morgan has written as a result of it, God says that you have already received a pledge, a deposit of the Holy Spirit. 
you've already been adopted in and you receive part of your inheritance already as a guarantee, a down payment of what's to come. But if you live this way, if this is what identifies you, if you are not in Christ because you're in sex, because you're in debauchery, because you're in hatred, because you're in jealousy, because those are the things that rule over you, then how can you say that God rules over you? How can you say that you are in Christ? How can you say that you're identified with Christ if really what identifies you are these behaviors? Not because you do them once in a while. I want to point, we've got to be very clear about that. We all sin. But if we sin to a point that that is who we actually are, if that's what identifies us, if that's what rules over us, then God does not rule over us. We can't be in the kingdom. Because the kingdom of God is the kingdom where he rules. And if something else rules over us, then he does not. You can't serve the two masters. You're going to serve God or whatever it is on this list. And if you serve those things, then you're not in Christ and you're not in the kingdom. So he's saying, when he says you will not inherit, yeah, you will not come into the fulfillment of your inheritance. You already have the deposit, but it will not be fulfilled. That should shake us to our core. And rather than discussing really the, like, well, what might sexual immorality mean? Like, well, what might this mean to the way that I am? Like, where do I identify myself? What's, what defines me? What rules over me? Morgan. I was kind of thinking, I was wondering, um, I don't think we can really answer this right now, but I would really wonder what addictions and how they play into this, because there are committed people who have legitimate sexual, alcohol, addiction, other things like that, that I would just, I really wonder how those things would play to this, because that would interest me. You know what I mean? I think it's a separate conversation, but it just kind of came to mind. Yeah, I think it's very important, because... Uh, I also don't want to be heard as saying that if you've fallen into an addictive pattern, that that means that you are ruled by that forever. But I've also seen people who've actually just written that addiction in itself could lead to a place where it just becomes like you give up on, and that becomes your identity. That is one of the hallmarks of it. So we wouldn't be so concerned about addictive behavior if it didn't lead down the road. And by the way, I, I think you should know, I don't know that there's anything more addictive than sex. I think it's a very addictive pattern. Here's something else that happened last week as we looked at these other things. Like we started even objecting to a word like witchcraft. Like the, the statement was made, well, what does witchcraft mean? Like is Harry Potter witchcraft? But that skips too far down the line. The first question is to say, what did Paul mean when he used this word? Like what does this word mean? Like you could look at it. Like, okay, so here it is in Greek, it's pharmakia. So if you look at the word in Greek, like you could identify what other word we get from the same place. Like pharmakia comes very close to pharmacy, or in other languages, pharmacia. So this word witchcraft that we translate, sure, you have to kind of translate, but it's very easy to go back to the original words in this case and say it meant the use or administrating of drugs and the secondary meaning, which is the one he probably meant, was sorcery or magical arts, especially those that utilize drugs for their magic. So now that we understand what Paul actually meant, we can ask a question like, is Harry Potter witchcraft? Well, first of all, it's a movie, all right? <laughs> but are you s sending your kids or your friends to see a movie about pharmakia? Well, yeah, I guess technically you are. And then you have to decide, like, what does that mean? I mean, are you ruled, are you identified by this? Probably not because you saw this movie. And by the way, I know we've brought it up a hundred times before. If Christians are going to get uptight about Harry Potter, they have to get uptight about Lord of the Rings. They can't, they can't, they have to, you can't, you know. They've got to be consistent. 
Okay, so there was no drugs in Lord of the Rings, and that's the <laughs> distinction. I don't know. That's how we should be approaching this. We have to say, what did he mean? What did it mean to them? What's the word mean? And then we could start to say, okay, so should I go see Harry Potter or not? Which I think we got greater things to worry about because this is really talking about people who are really giving their life over to this, not who happen to go see a movie. I think in last week's discussion, the words that really bothered us the most, although we didn't have the courage to bring them up, were these. We seem to really trip over the words, men having sex with men, and all of a sudden, all sorts of Old Testament examples started tumbling out about, well, what about this? And that's where we got really descriptive, if at all. And objections like, well, Jesus never said anything about it. It's like, let's focus on what we're studying. We're studying about what Paul said about it. And those other questions we'll have to bring up in other series. But there isn't much doubt about these words. Uh, in fact, again, we know what the words are. There are two words that are set near each other. Like in this case, malakos really defines a soft, effeminate, or a male prostitute, a boy kept for sexual relations with a man. Its connotation, not its denotation, but what it came to mean was the person who was submitting to male sexual relations. And that word comes right next to arsenicoitis, which has the definition of one who lays with a man instead of a woman. These words are put next to each other. So your translations might translate them as homosexual. This translation decides to take them as one man having sex with another man because both words describe man and man, a man recipient with a man like perpetrator. But the reason I bring this up is because we still have some work to do even if it's in this list. Look at all the other things that are in this list. And this is really the proper objection that we should have gotten to. Look, sexual immorality is there, but so is idolater, so is adulterer, which by the way, Paul describes people who are sexually immoral as idolaters because they worship that instead of God. So there's another clue about where your identity lies. But he describes the sexually immoral, the idolater, the adulterer, men who have sex with men. And he also throws in thieves, greedy people, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. There's that list that sounds awfully close to the one that Jesus was using. So we have to step back and say, let's not get too excited that Paul is condemning men who have sex with men or homosexuality. Because he's condemning all these other things. In fact, if you read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what he's using this list to condemn is Christians who sue each other. And I can tell you in my profession, that happens all the time. In fact, Christians sue each other, I think, more often than the general public. I don't know what gives us the, the feeling that we could just ignore this whole thing. I would even venture to say this is total speculation. But I would venture to say that the Christians I know that would sue people would be the most upset with homosexuality and not even realizing that the thing that they would use to condemn homosexuality actually condemns the very act they're doing, which is a Christian suing another Christian. And I've seen it in my practice all the time. So you could take some solace in saying, well, this is not condemned any more than anything else is condemned. Here's what you can't do. What you can't do is say, well, look, it's just as bad as all the other sins, so let's just let it go on. That's what you can't do. At least not based on Paul. Paul is saying all of these things are bad. And none of these people inherit the kingdom of God. So the fact that we're not singling out a group, but that all sorts of people could be in that group should be no solace to anyone. We should all strive to make sure that our identity is firmly rooted in Christ. 
that we're defined by who he is, that we're ruled by who he is, and that we're in his kingdom and not one where we're ruled by all these other things. When these things take the place of God, when these things become idols in the place of God, but I think that statement is a little bit fuzzy. At what point, what do you say, where's the line where these things rule you instead of God? That is an excellent question. I affirm the question because you see that his break in thought about no immoral, impure, or greedy person, he has that break in thought where he says, such a person is an idolater. So he's setting up the dichotomy for us that at some point, that person who is defined by their immorality, impurity, or covetousness has started to worship something other than God. So first, I affirm that we're getting it from Scripture. And second of all, that is a very difficult question. And I searched high and low to answer it for my own sake, if not for anybody else's. I mean, I knew that this question was going to come up and that it's fair for us after all is said and done and all the objections that I just walked through and went through to come back and say, all right, but give it to me straight. Like, at what point, like, how far can I go? Like, where's the line? And I don't mean because you want license to do those things, but because you want to sit in open examination and say, at what point does my lustful living cross a line where I'm no longer there? And one thing I find with warning passages, not only in the Gospels, but also in the Epistles, is that they seem to not have an answer for a reason. Because the answer would give us comfort. Like you would almost look and say, okay, well, I see where the line is and I'm still just this side of us. And isn't that human nature if we drew the line here? You know, like you could have an adulterous relationship with two people, but if you went to three, that was it. Like you'd be walking to the edge of that line and you'd say, I'm still on the side of the line. Now that's just my observation, but every warning passage I come back to, whether they were the ones that Jesus gave or they're the ones that they are in the epistles, like the ones in Hebrews even, I keep looking back and thinking it's almost meant to hold us in tension. Like your life is meant to be lived constantly asking this question. And if you're asking it, you're probably still on the right side of the line. Like if you're even thinking like, like not thinking it from the license perspective, like I want to do the most I can and get away with it, but more from the perspective of if I'm still concerned about this, it means that you are probably still in Christ and still wanting to be ruled by him. And knowing that all the things that he says are true, including the future inheritance, the positive side, and the wrath, the negative side, are all very true and you're still concerned about them. So to get the answer, it's you have to examine your own heart and say, if you're be honest with yourself, I guess, and make sure. And constantly, I would only add, like, it doesn't just happen once. It's like meant to be an open-ended warning that you keep examining yourself against. It's like a measuring thing you just keep coming back to over and over. It's like if I said to you, how much is enough to give? Like, we always come to that question. Like, it's a very practical question. Like, how much? Like, why don't you just give me a percentage? Why don't you just give me, like, a, a standard? It's like, because, well, there is one, everything. But, like, we always hold intention. Like, could it be more? Could it be more? Could I give up more? And I think that's because we are the healthiest when we constantly come up against these questions. You know? Jesus many times responded with a question. Right? And I feel like some of these questions are meant to haunt us and keep us in a place where we're not comfortable. I think that's right. Okay? That's why we were going to end last week with this sentence, don't be partners with them. It literally means like don't go into business with them. Don't be intimately involved with them. Not the sins, but literally the people that live this way. 
because you'll be dragged into it, but more importantly, because you're bringing that into the body of Christ. If you partner with those people in an intimate way, I don't mean sexual intimate way, like literally live with the people who live this way, you bring that into the body of Christ. The unity that you're forming includes people who are not unified to Christ, and that seems very, very strange. And that's not what we're supposed to be doing. So let's press forward. Yeah. Just one thing on that. What seems difficult, I guess I hear a lot, especially when you talk about missiology or how to relate with those who are not in the body. Um, there's a lot of hatred towards the us-them approach. So I wonder how to even get past that. Um, so I don't know. Uh, it just seems like it could really relate to something difficult and make it us versus them. And Maybe Paul means that. I don't know. I don't think he does. I mean, first of all, it would be awfully weird to the person who sees himself as the missionary to the Gentiles to make an us-them distinction between people who are Gentiles on the outside. I mean, he sees himself as reaching these people, so I don't think that. And people who are way smarter than me, almost every one that I read on what does this actually tell us to do, most were very clear to say, Paul is not trying to draw a distinction between, like, don't enter into their lives, don't reach out to them. But he's saying don't literally bring them into the kind of living and the kind of community that the church should have. If that creates an us-them, then yeah, I think missiologists would have to struggle with these words. I mean, I wish there was like an easy resolution where you go, oh, no, 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 he means like you can live among them. But, you know, and, and I think there's some of that. Like you could say, all right, we'll just pull out the tired old phrase of like be in the world without being of the world. It's just a pretty high warning. I don't think you can get by with that easily. Like, I think some missiologists would have to struggle with this and say, well, if I'm just going to live among all these people uh, and be intimately involved in their lives, um, he's saying that could ultimately end up bringing you down. If, if, if it's going to be worth it to bring them in, that's great. But if it works the other way, that's probably a disaster, not just for you, but for the whole body because we're unified. Yeah. It's so hard, though. I'm mean, sorry. I'm really struggling with that concept of what it means to be part because I've seen a lot of missions go wrong because people want to bring their own culture and force on other people and say live like me and you'll be you'll inherit the kingdom of God and I just I don't I'm really that definition is really hard. I don't I don't understand. Okay. Jeremy? Well the upshot is you don't have to make a decision based on this one verse. I mean so the thing that John is trying to say is that I mean you don't have to make a decision about this off of one verse. I mean, that, that's like a deeper question that you would you would definitely pull in other ideas, but you might talk about you know other theologies that kind of tackle that issue. So I don't, I, mean, I don't feel like we have to. I mean, I think it's a good tension, and I don't think this is the only place we have to make a decision about it. Yeah, I think the only place that we'd have to really some rub is like is the current view is really to live among and become part of the communities uh, as the best way to reach out to people because the old traditional way of being a missionary doesn't really work and this new way of incarnational living among people, all that kind of stuff, would be better. I'm sure there's many verses that support the other view and there are because there's whole books written on them and they probably don't cite this verse. Okay. You remember up here where it says, but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality? Actually, what the Greek literally says is you should not even discuss this topic. Which means that you guys made me sin twice. Because last week we went through this and then you made me repeat it all again. Of course, Paul can't mean that too literally because he wrote a letter about it. But I want to show you how seriously he takes this as he stretches into the next part. 
He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of the darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what, is the, what the disobedient do in secret. So he's telling us again, like he's emphasizing, like first, don't even talk about these things. And here he says, it's even shameful to mention these things in the body. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. I'm sure with all this nice light and darkness language, you understand exactly what he means. This is part of those flowery passages where we just go, uh-huh. Isn't this a song? Yeah. What is he saying here with all this light and darkness? Imagine that he says, you are light. He's not just saying that you have the light, or the Lord is the light and it's in you. He's saying, you were once darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. Like, you've become light. I mean... Most of the examples of light that we have describe the Lord. Imagine how he feels because he's saying you're in Christ. You're the body. So you are light. You have become light because of the Lord. Without the Lord, you can't be light. doesn't matter how good you try. Remember, all of Ephesians is focused on what God has done. So if you are light, live as children of the light. Children of the light means characterized by light, like be light, like live as light. If you are light, then live as light. And here's what the fruit of the light is. It's goodness, righteousness, and truth. That's what should be coming out of you. Find out what pleases the Lord. So if you are light, because God made what was darkness light in Christ, then live that way. This is the admonition that comes right out of what we've just been talking. This is one commentary that I think said it really well. What he's saying here is the writer wants the readers to realize that the church is to live by values as radically opposed to society's values as light is opposed to and incompatible with darkness. So when we're asking questions about sexual ethics, what he's really saying as he's concluding this passage is as much as light is different than darkness, as much as they cannot coexist, then our sexual purity must be so radically different than the society around us that the light just shines. That we're not characterized as we are in the church today by the same levels of sexuality as outside. The only difference between us and the people outside is we're forgiven. That's how we feel about it. That's not what he's talking about. He's like, be light. As incompatible as that is with darkness, then you should be so radically different. Let's stop there for a second. If we're not, then we cannot say that we are being this light in the Lord. Our witness is so tarnished, but more importantly, this is what we were made to be now that we are light, to shine. Not just to compromise and seek forgiveness, but to do everything within our power to live with this fruit of the light and find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Don't even associate with that stuff. You can't because you're light. But rather expose them. Expose them. You know, we don't do enough exposing in our group. I know it's uncomfortable. We don't do it in churches as much. We even hardly even practice confession or seeking forgiveness from one another, but imagine actually approaching someone to expose a dark deed in their life. 
Imagine the trepidation you have to feel when you do that. You know, in, in this passage, someone did this in my life. I went to Russia a number of years ago, and Anthony was on that trip, and so was a woman named Mary. And Mary was an older woman, and the rest of the team were all from Exodus. We were all young, and Mary had been to Russia a couple times, and we're walking around Russia, and, you know, it was just kind of, we're all familiar with each other. We're starting to banter around, and you know what? Our speech was not edifying. <laughs> That's the Christian way of saying it. We were walking around Russia with somehow the speech kind of started taking on that double entendre language. And pretty soon we were making comments that probably weren't the smartest comments to be making, and I remember that it was months after that trip was completed that Mary called me up one day and asked if we could have a cup of coffee. And I just thought, oh, this can't be good. <laughs> <laughs> and she sat me down and we talked. And I never forget how she started. She started with a word of affirmation. She said, you know, I love listening to you teach. I could listen to you teach every day which is why it pains me even more that you would use the same gift of wit and humor to make innuendos that I thought really were not appropriate for God's people. Man, I knew that was going to be a long conversation. But it was the right conversation. Because she took the time to sit me down and say, this is not right for a leader, let alone for someone who is just part of the body of Christ. And this is something you need to work on. That is what it means to not only have nothing to do with those deeds, but to expose them among even believers and non-believers, to actually approach people and say, hey, you're not living right. Now, I've got to be careful here because Paul elsewhere admonishes, like when I say live in sexual purity and have nothing to do with those who don't, he's talking about people in the church. He's saying, how can I hold other people outside the church to a standard they don't even know about? But still, the admonition here is that we expose them everywhere, but especially here. Especially when we see each other doing things like tearing each other down with our speech or engaging in this kind of coarse joking the way that I was. I admit that I was. And I looked at her and I said, Mary, I'm so thankful that you're doing this. I mean, it doesn't feel good. But I can't believe that somebody actually pulled me aside and did this and said, like, you're better than this. You should be better than this. The body of Christ is better than this, and they deserve better than this. And every six months, I run into Mary at church. I mean, I see her all the time, but every six months, she makes it a habit to say, how are you doing? You still remember our talks? Like, oh, yeah, I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> but she's still following up because she believes it's worth the investment to expose it and to say you should be better than this. Why? Well, he says it's shameful to mention what the disobedient do in secret, but he has another reason. By exposing things to the light, it becomes visible. And everything that is illuminated becomes a light. Now, that kind of sounds like a silly statement. Light is light. You know, everything that becomes lit is lit, you know. What he's saying is once you illuminate the darkness, it itself is a light to others as well. If you can help turn someone from those things of darkness and make them more light, then that is more light that will become visible. And when you expose something that is dark and you can bring it up, then it can become light to others and in turn expose that darkness as well. So Paul cites this fragment from probably a hymn that's circulating, maybe a small creedal fragment where he says, this is why it says, wake up sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I know tonight, as we close in worship tonight,
We can actually sing those words. Wake up, sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The words in the other parts is, for you are in darkness, but now you are light. And live in that way. So even as we sing those words, recognize they're coming straight out of the text of Ephesians. Let me close this way. I felt like it was important that we not just kind of brush last week under the rug a little bit and actually address Paul as what he's really saying because it'll help us also as we move forward into other things we don't like to hear. There's still a lot of work we can do in other series about what some of these things might mean against other scriptures or what do we do in light of Paul's commands or how much do they apply to us. But I think the main point is that we at least be honest enough to sit under God's word for a moment and say, hey, this is what Paul intended to say to his audience. This is what they heard. How does this affect us? I think in the area of sexual ethics, my hope for the church, my hope for me, is that we move beyond just being the ones that are forgiven to the ones who are actually so radically different than the society around us that people have to say, that's impossible. That can't be. I don't get that. That is not what I can understand. And then we will be as different as light is from the darkness and actually be a witness rather than just playing catch-up or trying to fix the things that we constantly do wrong. Let's close in prayer. Lord, be our helper because it is easier for us to live and to engage one another in humor and sarcasm. And often it is not an effort to build each other up. Lord, help us and be our helper because in times we allow each other to slip and just tell each other that everybody slips up and we don't hold each other accountable, don't shine the light, don't expose your light into their life. Lord, be our helper because it is really difficult for us to maintain this purity that you call the church to. But Lord, that is why the Holy Spirit is our helper, is our advocate and dwells in us. Lord, do what is impossible. Do what we don't understand. Do what blows our mind so that other people, and including people in the church, can see the evidence of your spirit moving because without you, we couldn't have done it. And Lord, in the area of sexual ethics, that is absolutely what we need. We need your spirit to change us completely from the inside because our appetite is often so degraded. Pray this in your name. Amen.